Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1,267. Nobody seems to pin down who first said it, but it's the one that goes along the lines of opportunity looks a lot like hard work. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I'm revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest calling in from across the pond, as they say, in Thornberry in the United Kingdom, James Page. James, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Absolutely. Good to go. All right. James Page grew up in southwest England and inherited his passion for cars from his father. He earned a journalism degree before embarking on a short career as a professional golfer. And then at the age of 26, he got back into journalism and secured a job at Future Publishing. He later became deputy editor of Classics Monthly magazine before leaving in 2011 to carry out the same role at Classic and Sports Car magazine, a magazine I've subscribed to for many, many years. Great publication. He became editor of CNSC in 2014 and then left at the end of 2016 to become a freelancer, hanging up his shingle, as they say. Since then, he's worked for a number of clients and has written two books for Porter Press, the latest of which is an incredible story of Aston Martin's DB4 GT continuation cars, where James had exclusive access behind the scenes. He has two more books due for publication in the future that I'm looking forward to as well. So James, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a brief moment, share a little bit more about your career and your passion for automobiles? Okay, well, it was it was very easy for me to uh, to put my passion together with something that that I enjoyed doing anyway, which was journalism. Um, I, I trained at university as a journalist, uh, and then, as you said, I, I had a brief diversion into the world of into the world of professional golf, and it soon became clear that I wasn't going to be the next Tiger Woods after all, um, <laughs> okay. which is which is kind of what I was hoping. But no, that that wasn't going to be the case, um, and so I then looked at falling back onto my journalism training, and I thought, well. What sort of journalism do I want to get into? I want to I want to be writing about things that I have a passion for and that I have a a really keen interest in and a lot of knowledge about. And that really led me into into motoring journalism. It was uh, it was a very easy decision for me. I never really wanted to uh, to go into any other kind of journalism. I thought, no, if this is what I'm going to do, then I have uh, a passion for cars already that uh, that came from my father, as you noted. So it's very easy for me to make that decision to then look for a job in in automotive journalism. Well, it's the secret sauce to life. And I've learned that after interviewing, well, let's see, 1,267 people here on Cars. Yeah. As of late, boy, I've talked to a lot of people. And yes, if you can figure out a way to wrap your passion for what you do into a living, I mean, every day. Now, they do say that old saying that every day is not like going to work. It is work. You've got to work hard at it. But you know what? It's enjoyable. And it doesn't become a grind and uh, you're not watching the clock hoping that when five o'clock comes along, you can't wait to get out of there and go do what you really love, which in your case, in my case, is go play with cars. So we're going to learn a lot more about you and about this fantastic book because uh, this Aston Martin DB4 GT is one of my passion cars. I just love those things. But first, as we continue on your journey, I always like to ask my guests for a success quote or a mantra. It's a nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on cars. Yeah. So James, grab the wheel. Well, it's interesting what you were just saying there about uh, about hard work, because one of my favorite sayings is the the one that nobody seems to pin down who first said it, but it's the one that goes along the lines of opportunity looks a lot like hard work. 
people say that people say that you know you're so lucky to do what you do and granted there are lots of perks to what i do and i have lots of great opportunities uh, to do things that i wouldn't otherwise be able to do but at the same time i've worked hard at it i've worked hard to to get where i am now i've, I've sort of gone all the way up the ladder of journalism, if you like, of, of starting on the very lowest rung of the ladder. Um, and so I've had to work hard at it. So I, I, I really like that phrase, opportunity looks a lot like hard work. No doubt. You know, I've had a lot of people talk about being lucky, and I always say, you know what? I don't think luck had anything to do with it. You just worked your tail off, and you were always doing it and trying harder, trying to learn more and be better at your craft. In the case of writing, I've had so many authors journalists on this show and they talk about those days where you know that old writer's block and you just have to power through you just have to sit down and do the work make the effort but of course if it's in the field that you're passionate about for your case and mine cars it's not always that bad um you just got to power through you're absolutely right that there are days where it comes easier than others you know in terms of the in terms of the writing side of my job but like you say you just just have to get your head down and there's a there's an interesting quote that came from Mario Andretti as well where somebody once said to him they visited his house and as you can imagine Mario Andretti's got a pretty impressive house the person said to Mario as they looked around why wow, motor racing's given you an awful lot and Mario said motor racing has given me nothing but fun he said, everything else, all that you can see here, I've had to earn. Yes. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's absolutely right. People get a, when you work with something that's your passion, you get a lot of enjoyment for it, but you do still have to put in the hours and get your head down and, and put in the hard work. Yes. Nice response, Mario. No doubt. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think too much was handed to him. He just had to get in the seat and work really hard absolutely. at acquiring all the things that he's, uh, he's acquired over time. Wow. Fantastic story. I love that one. Well, would you share a story with us that instigated your personal passion? I, I, I mentioned in the intro and you did as well about your father being a big influence, but is there a pivotal moment in your life when you knew that you were indeed going to be a car guy? Well, I think, I don't know whether there was a pivotal moment, but it was, it was obvious from a very, very early age that I shared my father's passion. Let's put it that way. He had a, or he still does have a, a slightly rickety old double garage that he put up himself. And he used to work on his racing car on one side and he had a, an old pre-war Speed 20 Alvis on the other side. And he sold the Alvis probably when I was about 10 or so in the mid 1980s. I can remember as a young lad, dad working on the racing car and me being alongside him. And I used to just walk up and down the running boards on the Alvis. And I can still remember the, the action of the, of the, the door handle, the noise that it made when you clicked it shut again. And, I used to sit inside it, like I say, with dad working alongside on the racing car and I'd be holding the steering wheel and imagine driving it. And apparently when I was very young, I don't remember doing this. I even prodded the starter button once and it didn't, it, it didn't fire up, but it got dad's attention pretty, pretty smartly. I have vivid memories of that. And when I was probably, I think I was eight years old, dad took me to, um, to my first Grand Prix. We went to Brands Hatch for the 1985 European Grand Prix. Uh, we just used to go to practice. We couldn't afford to go to the race. Even in those days, going to Formula One race was pretty expensive. But we went to the 1985 European Grand Prix at Brands Hatch, which is a, a great circuit to spectate at anyway. But, and it was in the days when you still had reasonably good access to the paddock. So I can remember seeing Alain Prost in the paddock and just seeing those cars uh, at the height of the turbo era when they were practicing with 1,200 horsepower or so. 
around a circuit like Brands Hatch was just uh, an amazing sight. And that I can remember that being a pivotal moment. That made me think I want to be around. I want to be around cars. You know, motor racing still now gives me when I see when I see something like that, it still gives me goosebumps. And I, th- I think the moment I lose that is, is probably the moment I need to be doing something else. But it's still with me. And it really does trace back to those days with my with my dad back in the 1980s. Yeah, 85. I mean, awesome years for Formula One. Nigel Mansell won that race. Senna was second. Rosberg was third. Prost. Know your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, well, I mean, that era was just so cool. And uh, the drivers, of course, iconic drivers, many of those we still have. Some of those, of course, we don't have anymore. But uh, yeah, just some awesome people. And it's those memories with our, our fathers, our grandfathers, brothers, whoever it might be, even moms. Uh had a, a lady on the show here just the other day whose mom was the tinkerer of the house. So she's the one who was out repairing the cars. And that's where this this woman got her influence of wanting to get into cars and race cars and so forth. So wonderful memories. Fantastic. Well, let's take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and talk about a big challenge or a big failure. Kind of get under the hood and get our fingernails a little greasy and oily here. I'd love for you to share one of these situations in your life that kind of pushed you up against a wall a little bit. But more importantly, what did that situation teach you so you could overcome it and come out on the positive end? I've been very fortunate through my career. I've had no sort of serious um, serious failures that I've come up against that I've had to overcome. But I would say that really the biggest challenge was actually going freelance. And that was more of a psychological challenge than anything else. Because working for magazines, uh, you have a, it's, it's a regular thing. I was working for a monthly magazine, as you mentioned at the beginning, Claskin Sports Car. And it was great. I, I learned a huge amount there. But I decided it was time to, it was time to go freelance. It's a real worry because you kind of think, well, what if, what if the phone doesn't ring? What if I'm sitting at home watching terrible daytime television, wondering how I'm going to pay the mortgage? Actually, to take that plunge to, to say, no, it'll be okay. I, I spoke to a lot of people before I did it, people who had done the same thing, who had gone freelance. I canvassed a lot of opinion and took a lot of advice. And in, in the end, I took that plunge. And actually, it was good in terms of proving that the phone will ring. Uh, people, you know, the, the people had recognized the work that I'd done in the past. They wanted to carry on working with me, which was which was great. I was, you know, unbelievably uh, thankful for that. But also, I very quickly learned that it's okay to say no as well, because as a freelancer, your initial thing is to just say yes to everybody, and because so, you never know when the phone's going to ring again. So you end up then learning how to control your work, and because if you say yes to everything, then you end up with no time to do any of it properly. And you then just have to be very disciplined in terms of who you say no to and still being able to do things to the best of your ability. So that was a that was a real lesson that I had to learn very, very quickly and very early on in my freelance career. Uh, no doubt. Um, you know, and you did a lot of the right things. A lot of people, when they set out on their own, they don't, like I say, I like to say prepare a runway figure out exactly what they're going to do. And you dropped a golden nugget there about no, learning to say no. Um, I have a, a great saying that I love, and that is doubt kills more dreams than failure yeah. ever will. So often people have so many doubts about what if, what what if. But in the reality, even when you're working for somebody else, there's this false sense of security that that job will always be there. And you know what? It may not always be there for a a huge variety of reasons. Many won't even be your own fault. Uh, I had a guest on the show. 
Yeah, I had a guest of the show the other day that worked for Ford Motor Company and was part of a huge layoff of 500 people right after she graduated from college, got a job at Ford, thought her life was set for the rest of her life, and then the economy dumps and they have to lay off a bunch of people. And out the out she goes sitting in the parking lot with her box of stuff going, <laughs> well, that was a short career, <laughs> yeah. you know, but uh, that's the reality of it. But yeah, the other part of it is, is believing in yourself, but really preparing, I think, and also setting a a financial preparation that is putting some money aside so that you can go a few months while you're recruiting and you're not scrimping or <laughs> heaven forbid wasting your time watching daytime TV <laughs> wondering but that was a great comment there uh yeah it's uh, absolutely well kudos to you for putting the shingle out as they say and uh venturing out on your own and yeah all it takes is is some hard work and effort and understanding what being in business for yourself is all about and the different aspects of that great story thanks for sharing that Let's have a little bit of fun here, as if we're not already, and have you share your first really special vehicle with us, and maybe a memory about that ride as well. It's funny. It's actually my very first car was also my very first special car, and maybe those two things are linked. The first car that you own, I think, has already has always got a special place in your in your heart. But with mine, it was um it was an old Mini. Um, I passed my driving test in 1994, um, and I'd learned to drive. I'd, I'd already sort of um, driven some of my dad's cars, you know, away from the public road. So I, I, I'd already, I already knew how to drive. Um, but then I passed my test and everything that I'd driven up until that point had been a relatively new car. And the mini was only nine or 10 years old, maybe, but I mean, the mini of the mid 1980s when this one was produced wasn't a great deal different from minis 10, 20, 30 years previously. I got in this thing when, uh, when we first bought it. On my own, I'd passed my test, so I was good to go. And I got maybe 300 yards down the road and I actually had to stop and kind of recalibrate my senses because everything was so much more immediate in a Mini than it had been in a passed my test in a Peugeot 205. And, you know, the noise was different. Everything felt different. It felt like 20 miles an hour felt like 60 miles an hour. And I remember stopping down at the bottom of my road and just having to take a deep breath and go, whoa, this is this is different. Um, but I, I absolutely loved that car. And I had um, I had it all the way through what is known as sixth form over here. I don't know what uh, what years in, in school or college that relates to in the US. But I was driving all the way through doing my uh, my A-level exams at school. And, and that car, I was one of the first of, of uh, our group of friends to pass my driving test. So I used to be giving lifts to everybody. And we had that many crammed full of more people than you can imagine fitting in a mini and i had some pretty good friends as well i mean i i'm a I, i'm a little guy but i had some uh, you know my friends were all sort of in the rugby team and so on and and so so cramming five big guys into a mini was uh it was great and i absolutely loved that car and I, you know when you first get your independence after you've passed your driving test you just want to drive everywhere and uh but i had some great great runs in that car well, I've got a huge smile on my face for a couple of reasons. One is a shout out to a longtime sponsor here, Chris Kimball, who's helped me and supported me with this show since the very beginning. And uh, he listens every morning. So he's he's uh, probably shaving right now. So Chris, uh, you missed a spot there. Uh, that's when he listens to cars. Yeah, but uh, he has a Mini Cooper and he's a very tall guy. I'm not a tall guy, but he is. And I just laugh at seeing him get in and out of that car. But the first time I ever drove a Mini was back when I was in college. And I had a roommate who had a friend with one, and he pulled up one morning. I'm like, "What is this?" You know, it's a you know an old one from the '60s. And he goes, "Let me take you for a drive." And he wrote, drove me up to the a place called the Cross in La Jolla, California, with these little windy streets to go all the way up to it. 
I couldn't believe that thing. I was like a go. I wanted one immediately. It's like, <laughs> this is the coolest thing ever. They he goes, well, you want to drive it back? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are fantastic little cars to drive. And I mean, you know, mine was just a bog standard mini city. But, you know, I tried to make it look like a racing mini from the 1960s. So I took the front oh, yeah. grill off. I took, it had little plastic wheel trims. I took those off. I mean, it looked absolutely dreadful by the time I'd done that. And eventually, <laughs> eventually I put them back on. But yeah, I have a lot of great memories of that car. Yeah, they're, they're a hoot. They're a hoot. And even the newer ones, we bought one for our daughter. Uh, and she left, uh, graduated from college. She still has it. She's got 100,000 plus miles. And I drove that car back and forth uh, to her college days, uh, the first one we got for her. And it was surprisingly comfortable. And that was a newer one. So they're a lot bigger than the old ones. But still, I couldn't believe all the things we could get inside that car. <laughs> Great little cars all the way up to today. How about Sellers Remorse? Is there a vehicle you've let go that you really wish you had back? Uh, lots of them. Yeah, lots of them. Um, the, the one that really stands out is I had a Volkswagen Golf GTI, a Mark II 16 valve Golf GTI. That was the first. First sort of quick car that I owned. I'd had a, after the Mini, I'd had a series of just fairly boring, cheap to run sort of cars, you know, cars that I could afford to insure when I was in my early 20s. And uh, the Golf I bought when, ironically enough, I was a golfer. It was just a really good time in my life anyway. I was in my early to mid 20s. Um, I was playing golf for a living. I had this cool car that had. I mean, it had a lot of miles on it, but it had been well looked after by the previous owner. And I can remember one morning, not long after I bought it, just a few days after I bought it. In fact, I, I I woke up, I had the day off, and I just decided to drive it down to where I went to university, which was Falmouth, which is maybe three-hour drive from where I am in Thornbury, which to a U.S. audience is probably just a trip around the corner. But in the U.K., uh, that's, <laughs> yeah, long drive. Yeah, that's that's a long distance in the U.K. And I just decided completely on the spur of the moment to drive it down there, have a little look around the time where I went to university and then drove it back. And the countryside between Bristol and Bristol and Falmouth is is fantastic. You go over moorland and it's just a great run. And I can remember averaging, it had a little trip computer on it, um, which I hadn't, I, I'd never had in the past. And I can remember for the first hour or two of the journey i averaged 84 miles an hour and that wasn't on a that wasn't on motorway that was just on normal roads and i just had such a blast driving it back and it, it was just one of those cars that inspired you to do things like that you wake up you've got nothing else to do or where shall i drive and that that journey really stands out awesome yeah i love those cars i love them a lot well let's talk about this new book of yours because i, I think it's a fascinating story and it's something in our pre-show chat we talked about with a lot of these manufacturers who've been around for decades are bringing back old models and creating what they call continuation cars. Jaguar has done it. Aston Martin, the DB4 GT, I mean, just an insanely cool looking car. Reminds me a lot of the 250 short wheelbase Ferrari in its paunch, its dance, its nature, its feel, all of that kind of thing. So and of course, this great book is by Porter Press, our friends there. So tell us about this new book. What inspired you to do it? And maybe some of the inside stories you uncovered as you delved into this, because you got an inside presence at Aston Martin to learn about this, access to certain people. So tell us about Aston Martin, DB4 GT, Continuation Cars. Absolutely. It was a, a project that, that came about when Aston Martin got in touch with Porter Press via an author that had worked on a book for them, a guy called Stephen Archer. I think he he brought the two the two factions together, and I was lucky enough to be brought on board as the as the author. And we did have exclusive insight and access into Aston Martin works. And the interesting thing is, 
Aston Martin Works obviously is based at Newport Pagnell, which is is kind of you know Aston Martin were based there for many many years uh, before they moved up to Gaydon, uh, 2007 I think it was they moved everything to Gaydon, and after that Aston Martin maintained a presence at Newport Pagnell, but everybody kind of thought well. No, Aston Martin had moved to Gaydon now. They don't do anything at, at Newport Pagnell. And so Aston Martin Works, which was their their heritage division, really, they had a restoration centre there and a service centre there. They thought to themselves, well, wouldn't it be cool to do something that just reminds people that, hey, we are still in Newport Pagnell. We're, we're still here. We still have a presence here. And it's not just you know a minor presence either. It's uh, a division of Aston Martin that is able to produce something like the DB4 GT continuation car. And I spoke to Paul Spires, who's the boss at Aston Martin Works, and asked him why he chose the DB4 GT in particular. And it was interesting because his first response was, well, it's just a really cool car to start with. I thought that was was just a nice answer. You know, it wasn't a corporate answer at all. This is just just an enthusiast saying, well, wouldn't it be cool to make a, a run of those cars? They made in period 75 of the touring body DB4 GTs. In reality, they were supposed to have made 100 to get the car homologated. So they had this gap of 25 touring bodied cars. And so that was their motivation. They thought, well, let's make those, let's make those 25. And I had access to Paul. I had access to the lead engineers on it. There's a guy called Simon Hatfield who was very, he was the lead engineer. He was very helpful. And also, just the, the technicians and the guys who are actually putting the cars together, they built at Newport Pagnell a little area where called the Build Centre, where they actually put these DB4 GT continuation cars together. And it was just amazing to be able to go up there and to see the attention to detail that was going into it, because both Paul Spires and Simon said that the easiest way of doing it would have been to make something that looked a bit like a DB4 GT, but just chuck modern components at it. And what they decided to do was say, no, we don't want to do it like that. We don't want to do this in a, in a half-baked way. We want to make something that if you put it next to a 1959 or 1960 DB4 GT, you would struggle to tell the difference. It would need somebody who is an absolute authority on those cars to tell the difference between the two. And so that's what they did. They started really from scratch and they did admit that they'd underestimated the scale of the task they, you know people think that well it's aston martin they must have all the they must have all the drawings they must have all the all the build information all the build sheets and they did have a lot of a, a lot of that information but in terms of drawings i think there are something like 3000 parts on the car and they had maybe 1200 drawings so they had a huge gap in terms of in terms of uh, of that resource and maybe some of the drawings they had were an earlier version and the car got updated and they didn't have the updated drawing and so on. So there were all these little things. And uh, it's interesting that they've recently announced that they're going to do another one. They're going to do um, you know, further continuation cars or that the Aston Martin Works is going, to, is going to produce other ones. Because when I spoke to Paul Spires at the end of it, I said, would you do it again? And he said, it's a little bit like having children. He said, in the immediate aftermath of the first one, you think, no. Absolutely no way of doing it again. And he a said, lot of work. He said, yeah. a few weeks or months, then maybe you go, actually, no, we could do this again. And yeah. it's interesting to see that see that they are doing it again. Yeah, that, that level of attention to detail and the, the authenticity that went into the continuation cars was, was really mind-blowing, to be honest. Once you get the, the inside story of it, it, it it's really impressive project. 
It's incredible. And one of the things I always like to ask when people get inside one of these situations like you did, what was, I'm sure you uncovered a lot of things that you had no idea you were going to uncover, but what was maybe one of the biggest ones that really surprised you and kind of set you back and went, wow, I didn't see that coming? Actually, it was it, it was something that I touched on there. And it was the fact that they had to do so much research into their own car, if you see what I mean. That's, that, that sounds ah, like, yes. a, that sounds like yeah. a, a slightly uh, daft way of putting it. Um, but I had, I had assumed that they would go to some office and there would be a big old dusty filing cabinet in the corner of the office and they would pull out everything they had on the DB4 GT and they would go, excellent, good. We shall just start making them again. Yeah, and, easy. <laughs> and actually, yeah, easy. And actually, it was nothing like that at all. There was so much reverse engineering that had to go into it they were very lucky in that they found an owner of a period db4 gt who was willing to let them take it completely to pieces and they did uh, a lot of laser scanning of components and like i say took a period car apart and studied other period cars as well there was all that process of reverse engineering that they had to go through before they could even get started and they themselves admitted that they didn't realize it was going to be that much of a challenge when they when they gave the whole thing the green light um so i was surprised at the amount of work that had to go into it from that perspective and and how hard they had to work to make sure that they were recreating the car exactly you know exactly as it would have been to to the extent that a 1959 or 1960 engine will go straight into the continuation car and vice versa you take continuation engine out and drop it straight into the into the old car and that there's all sorts of little bits and pieces like that where you can just switch components between the two and you know they will they will bolt straight in it's very impressive the way they've done it yeah fantastic i got to spend three days at the ferrari factory in their their classic division where they restore and work on old cars and one of the things I remember one of the gentlemen there told me, he said they had a, um, it was a 275 GTB, I believe. And he said, you know, one of the challenges we have when these cars come in is there may have been a few made, maybe 50, 100 or 400, whatever, but they're all different because they were all handmade. So depending on who was working on it that day, um, yeah. and maybe how much Chianti was flowing at lunch <laughs> or something, um, you know, they might have done something a little different because, well, this might work better. I'll just do this. Uh, and they just made it work. Unlike today, where everything is so precise and exact, and there's all these Department of Transportation rules where everything has to be, you know, spot on and so forth. So I think it's a fantastic undertaking. The book is absolutely spectacular. It's 128 pages. It's a 240 by 280 millimeter landscape. So it's a nice sized book. Very comfortable to go through 120 images in here. So uh, kudos to you and the folks at Porter Press for what you guys have produced here. Absolutely brilliant. Fantastic. Very, very cool. You're welcome. So James, up next is the last lap. Before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors that make this show possible. Hey, Cars Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Covercraft. I've protected my vehicles with their products for decades. Want to keep your vehicle's interior looking new? It's easy with Covercraft seat covers. They'll protect your seats from the daily abuse of pets, children, weekend adventures, and even those everyday spills. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. All Covercraft seat covers are easy-on, easy-off design that are machine washable. You can choose from many fabric options, colors, and accessories, all designed and carefully sewn for your special vehicles. Their seat gloves are semi-custom fit for cars and trucks, and their seat savers, a favorite of mine, are custom tailored 
to fit your seats like a glove. Work truck seat covers are tough, durable, denim weight fabric. It's like putting a pair of rugged jeans on your truck's seats. Want to stay warm? Covercraft also offers seat heaters. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Mark at Cars yeah sent you. That's Covercraft.com. Are you looking for a way to get your products or services into the ears of thousands of automotive enthusiasts around the globe? I can help. This is Mark Green here at Cars Yeah, and I'd be honored to be an influencer and ambassador for your brand in a unique and personal way. Five days a week, thousands of subscribers and listeners enjoy the Cars Yeah podcast and website. Contact me today and I'll show you how at mark at com or connect with me through the Cars Yeah website at carsyeah.com. Hey, Mark Green here from the Cars Yeah podcast. Did you know you can now see me on the Cars Yeah TV show? That's right. Cars Yeah is now on MAV TV. I visit some of the past Cars Yeah guests and take you along for the ride. Go to MavTV.com to learn more where you can enjoy Cars Yeah TV. MAV TV is also available on DirecTV, Fubo TV, Fios by Verizon, or you can stream it through MavTV.com online. And they said I only had a face for podcasting. All right, James, we are back. And this next question, I kind of put you on my psychologist couch and want to delve <laughs> deep into your mind about how you feel about yourself. So if you woke up tomorrow and you were manifested into a vehicle, a car, maybe it's a bike or motorcycle, could be a skateboard, I don't know. <laughs> uh, what would James be and why? I don't know. I'd love to... I'd- I'd love to say that I was a lotus. You know, I, I said earlier, I'm there's not there's not much to me. I'm I'm pretty small. I'm pretty light. I'd like to say that I'm more reliable than a lotus. So maybe maybe I shouldn't be a lotus um, purely because because of that reason. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe a maybe a Mini Cooper, something like that. My, we we spoke about minis earlier on. My kids would say that I'm not that cool, but I'd like to think that yeah, maybe a, a Mini Cooper would do me quite nicely. Well, I like the way you referred to the Lotus, of course. I, I had a Lotus in my past. I raced a 1960 Lotus Formula Junior Okay. Uh, for about 12 years. Fantastic car to race. It was a great car to learn how to vintage race in because it's very light. It's not too quick, but it's quick enough to get you in trouble if you're, you're not really <laughs> careful. And of course, every time I got in that car, you kind of talked about this when you talked about getting in a Mini Cooper. Anytime you get in an old car, you have to kind of stop and take a breath and put yourself into a different era mindset like you said the cars don't stop as well they don't accelerate as well but they they're just you know put those string back gloves on that are made in england and just kind of tend your back in time a little bit so i always kind of tried to uh bring in the ghost of jimmy clark when i got into that lotus of course i couldn't drive it anywhere near the well <laughs> as well as he did but i felt like him a little bit or at least i had a little sense of uh what he was like when he first, because I think that was the first open wheel car that he ever raced was an 18. So very nicely done. Well, we're entering the last lap. I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of that mini throttle. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? In terms of automotive journalism, it's very simple. If you can't do it, don't do it. And that can relate to a lot of things. It can relate to if a photographer asks you to get a car a little bit sideways on a photo shoot. If you can't do it, don't do it. Uh, yes. <laughs> if, you, if you're working on a car, uh, maybe, I don't know, you're trying to trace some electrical gremlins or whatever. Again, if you can't do it, don't do it. Get a specialist to do it. Get somebody to do it properly. So that's that's one that always comes to mind. If you can't do it, don't do it. Yeah. How many journalists have put a car into a guardrail? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's been a few, I think, just a few. 
Would you share one of your personal habits you believe has contributed to your many successes? It's good old-fashioned hard work, I think, to be honest, putting in putting in the hours. Um, just like we were saying earlier, opportunity looks a lot like hard work. So just not being afraid to put in the hours. There you go. How about a resource? There are so many these days. It really makes a lot of things easier. Of course, you got to check them all. But is there a resource that you tend to go to often? Uh, I I always enjoy Sniff Petrol, uh, which is a, a ah. pretty irreverent sort of a website. One for it, it's it's a fairly adult sense of humor, but it, it's always pretty entertaining. I always like checking in, see what they're see what they're talking about. Yeah, fun side for sure. Now, if I could arrange for you to sit down and have a drink with anyone in the automotive industry, living or deceased, who's that person you'd like to interview? Ayrton Senna. Pure, he was oh, my gosh. boyhood hero. So yeah. no reason beyond that. And my listeners know this. They've heard it ad nauseum, but I'm going to say it again. I mean, he's one of my favorite F1 drivers. So much so that I have one of his quotes on the back of my business card, um, which is, uh, the past is just data. I only see the future. <laughs> and I, I love I love that forward thinking thought that, you know what, always be looking out the front. That's where your future is. Don't worry so much about what's out the rearview mirror. It's a great guy. Yeah, absolutely. We lost a great one there. Yeah. Now, how about a book? Um, this is a tough question for authors. Aside from this new book that you've just authored, which is fantastic, is there another book you might suggest our listeners go and enjoy? You know, if if nobody uh, has read Touchwood by Dun- Duncan Hamilton, it's definitely worth a read. It's not one that you'd rely on for its factual accuracy, but it's unbelievably entertaining. You know, it's a great book, and I'll tell you a fun story. Um, the and I, sadly, I've not been to the UK very often, but. One of the times I was there was 1996, and I was with a friend, and Duncan picked us up at the airport and drove us out to his cottage, let's put it that way, <laughs> out in the countryside to look at some Formula One cars, uh, actually, that he had for sale. First and foremost, I've never been so scared driving through the streets of any city <laughs> as I was in the back seat of that. I think it was a BMW he picked us up in, but oh my gosh, that guy was that's a madman. <laughs> but uh, he gave me a copy of that book, and he talked at, at length during lunch, wonderful lunch we had with him about his father and the history of racing and England. And I mean, it's just the memories are, are great. So touch wood, I haven't heard that title in a while. I'm glad you brought that up. Cheers to you, Duncan. Uh, just don't get in a car with him. That's the rule. Oh my gosh. We got there alive, and he got me back to the airport, Heathrow Alive, so I guess I can't complain too much. Well, listeners, you can find all these great resources James has shared on his very own Cars Yeah show notes page. Just go to CarsYeah.com, type in James Page, P-A-G-E, and that page will pop right up. All right, James, we're up to the checkered flag, and this last question can be a bit of a doozy. Today is a fun day because I'm going to buy you any cool collector car on the planet and park it in your garage, but there's a couple rules to this game. One is... You can't sell it to buy a bunch of other toys with. You got to keep it and live with it. Number two, you've got to drive it and enjoy it. I don't think that's going to be a problem for you. And number three, which is the tough one, it's the only collector car you can have. So you need to choose wisely, my friend. It would be the Ferrari F40, uh, without a doubt, purely because of an article in Car Magazine by Roger Bell. And I read that article as a 10-year-old. We were traveling over to, we were traveling over to Germany. My dad bought that issue of Car Magazine, um, for us to read on the flight. And I read it over and over again. It was about Nick Mason's F40, actually. And I think that was the first F40 in the, in the UK. And it just completely caught my imagination. They took it from Nick Mason's place in London. They went down 
I think, to Castle Coombe Circuit, and then they kept on going down onto the uh, down onto Dartmoor, which is some great countryside in the southwest of England. And there were these wonderful pictures of it. And they spent a whole, uh, they spent at least a day with the car, maybe a whole weekend with the car before taking it back to to Nick's place. And that car and those photographs and that article just completely captured my imagination. You know, I know people talk about other supercars and obviously the next great leap forward was the McLaren F1, which then you're into the realm of hypercars and so on. But the F40 for me was that real poster car. It was the car that I had on my bedroom wall. It was I, I kept that copy of, of, of car magazine for years and years and years and just used to keep looking at it over and over again and uh, not long after maybe a year or so after that we were we were in Italy on a family holiday I think I was asleep in the back of the car and my dad suddenly shouted he said James don't wake up and it was because there was an F40 going the other way so I can remember waking up and thinking oh what, what, what's going on what's going on and looking out the window and there was this F40 going past and Bizarrely, after all these years, it's not even a car that uh, that I've driven yet. All the opportunities that I've had to drive great cars over the years, an F40 is still one that I haven't ticked off. Um, but it, it still stands alone for me, purely because of, of what it meant to me growing up and how it captured my imagination growing up. Yeah, one of the last great analog Ferraris and basically a Formula One car with a body on the top of it so you can drive <laughs> yeah. it on the street. Oh, what a magnificent car. Well, you picked a really nice one and and definitely a a top 10 bucket list car for me as well. I've just always loved those things. Got to spend a a day with one once. There's a gentleman up here in the Pacific Northwest who has wonderful collection, many Ferraris, including one of those. And I remember going up and getting a ride in that thing and just going, man, oh man, it's just uh, raw and, (laughs) and fun. What color would you like yours? Just so I get the right color. Uh, I'm afraid I'd have to be boring and have it in red. Oh, so red. Yeah, yeah, there we go. All right. I'll see what I can do for you, James. Well, you've taken us. You're welcome. <laughs> you've taken us on a great ride today. Really enjoyed getting to know you better. I want to thank you for sharing your journey and this great new book about Aston Martin. I mean, just fantastic. Could you give us a little parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you rip off into the Thornberry countryside in your very own Ferrari F40? You know, sometimes it, it's okay to stop. That's something I've learned um, since I've been a, since being freelance. When you're self-employed, the tendency is just to keep plowing on and plowing on and plowing on and not wanting to not wanting to stop. And obviously, yep. these days we lead very connected lives. You know, your emails are constantly coming in on your phone, and and people can always get hold of you. And sometimes yep. it's important just to stop. Have a look around. Uh, you know, I'm starting to sound a bit like Ferris Bueller, aren't I? What's that Ferris Bueller? Wait, like, yes, yes. Pretty far. You know, <laughs> yep. stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. I'm starting to sound a little bit like Matthew Broderick. Um, but I, I think that's important. I think it's important to, obviously, we've spoken about working hard and so on, but also it's okay to to stop once in a while and have a look around. You know, it's it's wise advice. I had a guest on the show uh, the other day who talked about the 888 rule in life that her boss had taught her eight hours of work, eight hours of rest and eight hours of something for yourself with friends, family to rejuvenate. So, uh, absolutely. And the other thing that reminds me is of course, a great quote by John Lennon life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. (laughs) Uh, you know, so, uh, that's another one. Yeah. Balance your life out. I understand. I was having the same thought myself last night. You know, I'm up at 6 a.m working at my computer until 6 p.m. I eat dinner. I go back and work more and seven days a week. And sometimes I've got to stop and take care of myself and uh, rest a little bit, rejuvenate the batteries, if you will. I'll uh, remember your advice, James. 
What's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and what you're doing and also to get their hands on a copy of this new book? Uh, well, I'm I'm a bit uh, I'm not very tech savvy. I've got to admit, so I'm not on social media. I probably should be. Um, but in terms of um, in terms of the book and in terms of future projects and things that I've got going on at the minute, the best thing to do is to check the Porter Press website, which is just porterpress.co.uk. So that's got information about the Aston Martin book and also about a couple of other books that I'm uh, that I'm working on at the moment, either that I'm editing or that I'm writing. So we've got quite a few exciting projects going on at the moment. And that's where that's where people can find out about them. Exciting. Well, again, listeners, you can find all these links on James' show notes page on the Cars yeah website. And a shout out to Rebecca Leopard from Events PR in the UK. She's the one that introduced me to James. I'm so glad that she has. Rebecca's introduced me to a lot of great people. And a shout out to the folks at Porter Press for the great books. You've got to check out porterpress.co.uk. They have an enormous selection of fantastic automotive books. Every time I go there, I want to order every single one of them. Uh, Fantastic things there. But uh, first and foremost, get your hands on this new book that uh, James Page has produced. Again, Aston Martin, DB4 GT, Continuation Cars. You're going to love it. It's worth adding to your library. James, thanks for being so generous today with your time and expertise, calling in from across the pond, as they say and sharing your many experiences with me and the listeners. Well, thanks very much for having me. You're welcome. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thanks a lot, Mark. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Pleasure's been all mine. Cheers. You take care of your cars, but who takes care of your investments? Tune-ups aren't just for engines. Updating your financial plan is important, too. Your GPS may take you from A to B, but it won't help you on the road to financial freedom. For that, you need a good co-pilot and a very trusted advisor. Chris Kimball, CFP, is just the man for the job. He'll guide you down that road without driving you crazy. For over 25 years, Chris has helped people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. With a master's degree in financial services, he is eminently qualified, and he's a car guy too. Learn more at chrisvkimble.com or call 866-ON-A-PLAN. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member FINRA SIPC. CK Financial Services is not affiliated with Money Concepts Capital Corp. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.